Welcome to the J3 University Podcast. Each week, we bridge the gap between science and in-the-trench experience for physique enhancement. I'm your host, John Jewett. Let class begin. Welcome, everyone, back to the J3U Podcast. I am John Jewett, and with me, as always, my co-host, Luke Miller. And today, we have a great episode um, with the big buzzword of GI health. And of course, to speak on GI health is with us, Dr. Gabrielle Fondero. Dr. Fondero, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. And for J3 University, everything that I want to do, I've always wanted to be bridging the gaps between science and in the trench practice. And so reaching out to evidence-based practitioners that are in the field that work with clients, but also can relay scientific information in a way that we can understand. And uh, you have your PhD in human nutrition, food, and exercise. Um, you've also worked and really bridged your way from being the, in, in the research lab, looking at GI function, looking at resistance training, but taking that and applying it specifically into sports science. You know, we're with Renaissance periodization as kind of like the, the GI health fitness guru and so that we don't have a lot of space within the fitness area for gi health experts if you want to you know a lot of people are calling you a gi health expert i know that's like quote unquote uh, if you want to say um but we have a lot of researchers but not a lot that have like bridged into the area of, of putting out information for the actual like competitors or people that are in the field so um so thank you for coming on it's it's uh, great to have you I'm glad that uh, people like to listen to what I have to say. <laughs> it really is. It's an honor. And I'm glad that I can also, you know, communicate um, the, the research in a way that's practical and hopefully helpful to people because it is such a new area and it's sort of rife with misunderstanding, um, misinformation and a lot of marketing and, you know, sort of takes advantage of what we don't know. You know, absolutely. There's a lot of like buzzwords now that they're, they're just thrown around so commonly. And I don't even think we know what they mean anymore. And we're going to dive into those somewhat like gut health or microbiome and you'd be like, oh yeah, take this. It just fixes your microbiome. And you're like, oh, okay, because the microbiome, we need to do something with that. And we need to take something, we must take something, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but you got into GI health, because that's an interesting area to get into. Because with nutrition, yeah, a lot of people think, oh, you're, you're going to be like a cafeteria worker. You know, it's around food and looking at a plate. But then it, it's such a deep dive of like breadth and depth within nutrition of mm -hmm. where you can really go. And I, if I'm correct, you started in a re, uh, resistance training, like sports science, exercise science lab, um, looking at high fat feedings in rodents, mm -hmm. correct? And that kind of led you on to like, hey, there's something going on here uh, with the gut and feeding yep. these high fat diets. And mm -hmm. um, that led you kind of down the GI health path. Is, is that correct? Is that how you kind of got into all this? Yeah, it was really uh, just a happy accident. Um, it wasn't happy at the time, but <laughs> it's worked out well. But um, yeah, so I was at Virginia Tech. I was in um, a skeletal muscle phys and biochem lab. I had really um, developed a fascination with sliding filament theory uh, and just skeletal muscle function in general. And my first project was looking at the effects of high fat feeding on hypertrophy. 
And um, we had, and we ran that study for a solid six months. We had a few cohorts of rodents that went through. Everything went off without a hitch. And then during the tissue collection phase, we ended up um, putting some samples in the freezer that, that were not, um, <laughs> they weren't yet frozen. And when you put something on its side in a container that doesn't fully seal, things leak out. <laughs> and so we ended up losing, you know, all, almost all of the, the muscle tissue that we would have used for our RNA and protein synthesis, which was effectively the study. And um, concurrently, I had been running a side project looking at the effect of probiotic supplementation during high fat feeding and whether that could potentially confer some, some protection against the metabolic dysregulation that we see. Mm -hmm. And it was really just that I was very curious about some of the uh, experiments that we were running and why we were using the, um, you know, the LPS, the endotoxin that we were using. And um, my advisor finally let me run a study that was more focused on the gut because that's where this endotoxin was coming from. And I thought, you know, why don't we get to sort of the root cause? Uh, but we were not a, a, a gut microbiome lab. Now I had done a brief internship in a lab that was looking at uh, gut microbiome and inflammation. And so I had a cursory knowledge of what might be going on. And I uh, ended up taking that as my main project, you know, after we lost the skeletal muscle hypertrophy uh, tissue, we thought, well, you know, I've got the side project going on. And so we ran that for several years, um, several cohorts of mice. We started in on a, a human trial as well. And um, I didn't really anticipate doing anything with it. I just wanted to get my PhD so I could hurry up and teach. So I hurried up for five years <laughs> and then went on to teach for four. And it wasn't until I decided to resign from academia and go coaching full time um, that Dr. Mike from Renaissance Periodization recommended speaking about gut health because it, it seemed like it was like a burgeoning new topic back in you know 2017 uh, when when I went into coaching full time and a few years later it's even bigger than it was then. Yeah, and so I think when a lot of people tune in for for gut health, there's a lot like at least the this audience that's bodybuilders. And uh, it, it gets disregarded pretty easily um, for some. Some, it's a real buzzword, and I feel like this is kind of your more new age kind of foodie, right? Um, but others like, oh, yeah, whatever. I don't care about gut health. Why This doesn't influence my other systems. But it yeah. does. Um, it's it, Everything's working together amongst the brain, thyroid, skeletal muscle, uh, your immune system. And if there's a dysregulation amongst any systems, you won't be optimal in developing your physique. Um, that's uh, like, you need all the right conditions for this to happen. And we're looking at like, there's a lot of issues that can derive within the gut that affect all, all the systems presently. So we talk about gut health and I think it's important to just lay a foundation of, I know we don't really quite have the term of like, what is gut health? But if, if you can lay some, some framework around that and how we might define it, which is probably getting more into like, what is what is more normal gut function versus abnormal function? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that could help lay it out for what we might give some type of definition for, for gut health to start with from there. Yeah, absolutely. So I will preface this by saying that this is a, a working definition that I have come up with over the past few years of being asked this question many times. 
And the true answer of gut health means nothing is not really satisfying, <laughs> but gut health really means nothing or it means anything that you want it to mean. And so that's, <laughs> that's where, um, you know, there's the rub because you can very easily sell supplements and, and market things to improve gut health because it's just a nebulous term. But I thought that it might help to, you know, acknowledge what people are probably thinking of when they say gut health. And that would be my three D's of gut health. So we're talking about diversity, disease, and digestion. So diversity refers actually to the gut microbiome. So the microbiome uh, is talking about the microbes. So we have mostly bacteria. We also have archaea. We have some uh, fungi like yeast. We also have bacteriophages, which are non-living viruses that infect bacterial cells. And we also have viruses. And then we also have all of the genetic material belonging to all of those microbes. So we're talking about tens of trillions of microbes and hundreds of thousands of genes. So we're about, we have a, a ratio of about one to one microbe to human cell, if we count like blood cells, but their genetic material outnumbers our genetic material by many magnitudes. So they have a lot of functional diversity they, we can outsource a lot of metabolic functions to these microbes that we can't perform ourselves. And so when we talk about diversity of the gut microbiome, we're talking about both the richness of species, so how many different types of microbes do we have? We're talking about the evenness. So what's the relative distribution of those microbes? Do we have mostly microbes that are either neutral or potentially beneficial, and then relatively fewer that could potentially cause disease? And we don't have specific cutoff numbers. This is just a relative ratio. So there's a, uh, a qualitative aspect to gut microbiome research that makes things uh, a little nebulous. <laughs> we, we don't get much better than the nebulous in, in gut microbiome literature at the moment. And then we're also talking about a diversity of genes. So we have many different functions. And we also have a level of redundancy there. So that even if we were to lose a group of microbes, another group could easily come in and take their place and we don't lose functionality. So that's what we're talking about when we're, when we're referring to diversity. In most cases, some, some labs, some studies will look at just one aspect of diversity. They might just look at how many species are there. And not many look at the functional diversity of genes. So after diversity, then we have disease. So this is actually looking at the GI tract itself. Do we have the presence or absence of either a functional disease? So the tissue is normal, but the function is abnormal, like with irritable bowel syndrome, or an organic disease, where we have a disorder of the actual tissues, like inflammatory bowel disease, which would then influence the function. And then we're talking about digestion. So are we having a comfortable number of bowel movements each day and a tolerable amount of gas? Do we feel like uh, we have you know, a comfortable level of, of satiety after our meals? And then you know, things are passing through relatively easily. And then you know, we're, we've had you know, at bowel movements anywhere from three times a day to three times a week is generally normal. Um, and you know, a comfortable uh, texture of three to four on, on the Bristol stool. So that's kind of what we're talking about when we're talking about gut health in most cases. Now, if we take, if we zoom out, like, in, and you had mentioned kind of take a more systems approach, we don't have the capability at this point of establishing any causal relationships between the gut microbiome and any disease. 
and we don't have a profile of either a, a healthy or, uh, or an unhealthy gut microbiome. We have a, a great many number of limitations in attempting to do that. So although we are aware that the gut microbiome likely influences many aspects of human physiology, both uh, directly and then indirectly sort of by like peripheral signaling, we don't exactly know how, we don't really know how to modify that to optimize human health <laughs> or, or disease. But when we're taking that sort of systems approach, it would be just maybe an acknowledgement of the presence of other forms of disease could potentially influence uh, the gut or the gut microbiome or vice versa, but we just don't have that directionality at this point. Gotcha, and that makes sense. So it's with, with disease in the GI, because you see the associations like there's um, hypothyroidism and like gut dysbiosis and leaky gut. And it's which came first? Is it like the chicken or the egg type of thing? And I guess we, we, we don't really know, we just know there's this association happening between mm -hmm. these conditions. But um, you, you laid out three things like there's diversity looking like microscoped, zoomed in of the microbiome, then mm -hmm. kind of moving outwards, like into the disease states, and then finally mm -hmm. into like what you're actually experiencing digestion-wise. Mm -hmm. um, looking at the microbiome, there's lots of discussions around specific strains um, mm -hmm. and how those strains might influence and how we can manipulate these strains. Mm -hmm. uh, do, do we have a, a composition that would be more ideal. How would, how would you even assess this? I mean, is because these people that are throwing around like GI health and mm -hmm. taking certain probiotics to bring about a certain effect of, of what this diversity should look like. Mm -hmm. Do you have a way to assess this or is, is there something, um, is it still just, we just don't know quite as much yet to really putting anything down on? Yeah, we really just don't know. Yeah. And, and here's the thing too with dysbiosis is that quite often people are assuming that dysbiosis is synonymous with unhealthy or bad. You see gut dysbiosis thrown around all the time. Like gut dysbiosis is the cause of yeah, yeah hypothyroidism or you know difficulty gain, uh, losing weight or acne or fatigue or headaches. So people are taking very common maladies that have no known cause or etiology. So we don't know, you know like what causes a headache all sorts of things, and then things that we don't know. And we actually don't know exactly what causes them, but maybe certain things. And then they say, well, it must be gut health. It must be gut dysbiosis. Dysbiosis is not a, uh, it, I, I, there's a great article. It's sort of an op-ed and it's entitled, Dysbiosis is not an answer. Um, it's behind a paywall, but if you can like get around that with Sci-Hub or something, it's worth reading. <laughs> and um, the author makes the really excellent point that because dysbiosis is again a nebulous term. It can often be used as a scapegoat. Dysbiosis really just means different from the control group. And there is a researcher out of Cork, uh, Colin Hill, who has spoken about uh, some of the limitations in gut microbiome literature and the idea of dysbiosis in a more um, balanced way, I think. And he brings up the point that dysbiosis may be that individual's healthiest potential microbiome profile. That dysbiosis is altered, it's, an al it's altered compared to the control group, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's diseased or unhealthy. The microbiome is its own ecosystem. So as we move from, when we're talking about the gut microbiome, we're usually talking about small and large intestine. 
as we move from, from the beginning of the small intestine close to the stomach, all the way to the end when we're looking at the rectum, we see a series of micro environments all the way along the GI tract. So we can look at it cross-sectionally. We see the inside of the tube or the lumen, and then we have cells uh, lining the tube in the small intestine with many, many folds. So we have a lot of uh, crypts, little kind of like dark places where some microbes want to hang out near the cells. Others want to hang out in the lumen. In the large intestine, we also have a, a, a bilayer of mucus covering the intestinal cells. So we have another microenvironment there. And as we move longitudinally from beginning to end, we see really different, uh, we see significant differences in pH. And so there are different microbes that are thriving in various levels of pH. So within the, the whole gut, we have these microenvironments and we have all these organisms interacting with one another. So it's not one unit, it's not one organism that we're looking at that we can influence very easily you know, through diet and exercise in, um, in, in a specified way. And so when we look at something like dysbiosis and we look at a community that is altered, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's something wrong with that community and that it's causing disease. It's just that those microbes as living organisms have adapted to whatever challenges uh, have presented themselves. So it could be a change in nutrient availability, it could be a change in pH, could be a change in the environment. And so when we use something, a term like dysbiosis or bad gut health, and then say it causes this thing, uh, we really have put the cart before the horse in a, in a huge way because we are really not close to that level of data. And where we do approach that potential establishment of a causal relationship, it's in a rodent model. And so we have a, a mechanism there. So we might do a fecal transplant in a rodent model and say, oh, wow, well, we transplanted from this um, you know, model of uh, a bowel disease into this rodent. And then we saw that they developed you know, some inflammatory markers. And we could say, okay, well, then it seems like the microbiome maybe could have a, a causal relationship, but it doesn't actually cause that disease in those rodents. So what's more likely in this case is that there's probably a cyclical relationship that, you know, a person has a genetic predisposition or some environmental and lifestyle factors that potentiates the development of a disease. There's then a change in the environment and then that could potentially influence the microbiome and then potentially the changes in the microbiome feedback, but we just don't know that. We really don't have that information yet. So obviously like with, as coaches, like our role is trying to like concise this information into a way that we can apply it, which is kind of like the whole reason we have yeah. you all, because like you're probably one of the, the best in converting that research knowledge into application, right? And it's mm -hmm. oftentimes a multifactorial approach with physique athletes. So we've right. got drugs in play, we have stress factors and a mm -hmm. bunch of other things that are influencing that. So can you start to walk us through like how we're starting to take this information into identifying these multifactorial issues and possibly starting to try to create solutions for this? Because um, that's where it, this field is interesting, but hard to navigate a lot of times because yeah is a lot of like misinformation or terms that are used that don't really have full actual meaning like you've already mentioned. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so start to walk us through that multifactorial approach and, and what that mm -hmm. looks like. Yeah, I think the best um, that we have in terms of practical applications, we can borrow from the studies that we've seen in uh, mostly in endurance athletes, but now we're starting to see an emergence of data coming from resistance trained athletes. Uh, and again, it's correlational. But I think one of the most telling articles, and it could be because I'm, I'm biased, I've been told that I'm a strong advocate for fiber, um, so I'm waiting for my fiber shill paycheck. 
Um, but uh, would be a study that came out, uh, I want to say it was in 2020. And this was really a, a it may, may have been a secondary analysis, or maybe the observational data came out first. But the observational data that came out in about 2019 showed that in, in bodybuilders who were eating very high fat diets, sort of at the expense of fiber. So these must have been in the massing phase. They were um, sometimes eating upwards of like 100 to 125 grams of fat in a day and getting about 10 to 19 grams of fiber in a day, that there was a negative relationship between fat intake and levels of bifidobacteria. And that's generally regarded as a beneficial uh, group of bacteria. So if you've seen like probiotics, there are many different strains of bifidobacteria that are considered to be probiotic. So that sort of indicated that, okay, well maybe it, it could be the, the high fat intake or it could be the low fiber intake. And we're still not entirely sure which is the um, most significant influence, whether it's a high fat diet or a low fiber diet, uh, but it's probably a, a combination of both. Because if we're looking at the effects of ketogenic diets, uh, the ketone, one of the ketone bodies actually suppresses the growth of bifidobacteria. So if we have that in combination with low fiber, we are both suppressing uh, the growth and also reducing the nutrient availability for those microbes. So microbes require nutrients, just like any living organism, and they really have to settle for the things that are not digestible to us. So those are the things that pass through the small intestine and get to the large intestine. And for the most part, we're talking about fibers. And they especially uh, like to ferment soluble fiber. And as they're fermenting these fibers, they're producing energy for themselves. And then they're producing either gas or short-chain fatty acids as a byproduct. They can, to a limited extent, ferment amino acids, but when they do that, they actually produce some compounds that are associated with the development of colorectal cancer, like um, cresols, uh, and then um, TMAO is associated with cardiovascular disease, but we still haven't really established like, a causal relationship in either case. But the take-home message there is that it's probably more to our benefit if they're fermenting carbohydrates than amino acids. You can't really do much of anything with, with fats, with fatty acids. So fast forward about a year, and they were looking at actually the effect of probiotic supplementation in bodybuilders. And so they had a group of bodybuilders and they, they uh, grouped them by their dietary intake. And then they also compared them to a group of sedentary controls. And what they found was that the bodybuilders, well, probiotics did nothing for anyone, which is not a surprise because it's not like a multivitamin. But in any case, what they found was that the bodybuilders who were uh, eating a diet that was very high in protein and low in, in fiber, so they were, weren't really eating sort of what they considered to be a prudent dietary pattern because they were so deficient in fiber, their microbiome was no more diverse than the sedentary controls. And that was a surprise because what we found by and large is that individuals who are fit, so people with greater cardiovascular fitness, with greater levels of activity, tend to have more microbial diversity. Well, in the bodybuilders who were ingesting adequate fiber, they did have elevated microbial diversity. So it looks like diet could potentially mediate the, in the, the relationship between exercise and microbial diversity. So even if we're exercising a lot, if we're not providing nutrients for those microorganisms, it makes sense that they wouldn't be able to thrive. It's not just the exercise that, uh, you know, that mediates that relationship. It also has, there has to be a dietary factor. So I really think there's a tri-directional relationship there that diet can both support our performance, obviously, and potentially the diversity of the microbiome. And the microbiome 
plays a role in things like immune function, could also potentially play a role in skeletal muscle hypertrophy, and can also produce um, nutrients for us from things that are not digestible to us. So if we're both engaging in exercise and getting adequate fiber, we're really getting the best of both worlds. So when people are eating diets that are you know, really high, they're just like kind of thinking of macros and they're like not eating any vegetables and they're not thinking about their fiber intake, they may not really be fully realizing the benefits of all their physical activity. And I think uh, fiber is a unique one within the bodybuilding crowd because <laughs> there, for okay, so like when I started bodybuilding, it was all about like brown rice and whole grains, mm -hmm. and, and then there was like this shift, like oh no no no, we want to eat it's all white jasmine rice now, <laughs> like that's yeah. the thing you eat and cream of rice and um, where that came about, I don't know. I understand the application because eventually food volumes get so high. You, you need things that can digest fast, assimilate easily. And usually right. maybe that food volume is high enough to where you, maybe you do get enough fiber. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm on prep right now. I'm the unique prepper because I mainly eat oats, pumpkin, and garbanzo beans. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> I'm like, I don't want to starve on white rice. But anyway, yeah. um, <laughs> so there is a, a, an, an aspect in bodybuilding where a lot of guys are lacking fiber in from what you just spoke on there's there's a function within endurance resistance training capacities but mm -hmm. when you are having fiber um and especially increasing it there's mm -hmm. gi distress or just yeah. gas and bloating that happens mm -hmm. and uh i get a lot of like my clients coming back to me saying I, i'm bloated i'm gassy and that mm -hmm. it's a that it's an issue that, right. you, that it's not a uh a, a normalcy that we should mm -hmm. be avoiding some bloat or gas. And so mm -hmm. what level of this would we say, hey, yes, uh, when you increase fiber to a certain level, this is normal or this mm -hmm. is not normal? Mm -hmm. Well, normal would certainly be subjective. I yes. think more in terms of like what is, what is tolerable to a person, which is going to be, um, you know, sort of individual. Now, of course, there would be a threshold beyond which, you know, quality of life would be affected or even nutrient intake might be affected. If a person has really painful gas and bloating and uncomfortable bowel movements, that they're going to have a more difficult time, uh, you know, potentially meeting their, their energy needs. So I think that, that what we see with um, physique sports are sort of both ends of the spectrum. So we have folks who have incredibly high energy intake needs that really need to um, limit their fiber intake and the volume of food that they're eating so that they can eat enough and still train and like walk around and be awake. <laughs> and then on the other hand, we have folks that are on prep that are trying to manage hunger levels. And that might look like really increasing, um, you know, fiber because they're e eating a lot more, uh, many more vegetables. So they're just trying to increase meal volume. And when we're oscillating between these sort of two extremes, we go from a place of very, very little fiber intake, potentially people who are like getting ready to get on stage. A lot of times people will completely eliminate anything that could potentially cause any gas or bloating. So it's like a zero fiber, very low residue diet coming off. Um, sometimes folks have sort of like a celebratory meal or something like that, or like a celebratory period of time or sort of a rebound time because maybe they've developed some eating pathologies. And now we have a much greater increase in fiber intake. Um, and also maybe just a, a large load of, of even refined carbohydrates to the small intestine, which could certainly cause GI distress. 
and bacteria will still ferment those. You know, if, if they hang around in the gut long enough because we're kind of like waiting for things to digest, that can certainly still happen. Um, and then, you know, getting to getting back into trying to establish normalcy, we've got a lot of GI distress. There are, there's kind of confusion about like what types of foods might cause more GI distress or, you know, is there damage if we're eating fiber? And then there are some camps that are like, nobody needs fiber at all. And so some people are, are not it's eating. It's not us. We're not going there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're, we're a pro-fiber community. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Yay. Fiber shills. Citrusel will be sending us checks in the mail now. But when we are modifying our fiber intake um, to the extreme and relatively quickly, especially when we're increasing it, that's when we can really notice more GI distress. The, 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 mo the more prudent approach to increasing fiber intake would be about three grams per week up to the ideal amount, which would be for females about 25 grams a day and for males about 38 grams a day. Or you can think about it in terms of about, of about 14 to 15 grams per 1000 calories ingested. So, you know, for, for the larger like male bodybuilders, it might be about like 45 grams a day or so. The upward limits are, are really also individual. Like sometimes folks feel fine if they get up to around 50 or 60 grams a day. There are some, I've, I've had people who are like vegan on, on Instagram message me and say like, I'm eating 125 grams of fiber a day and I feel fine. And I'm like, well, great. I'm sure you're like, your microbes are super excited about that. Um, but we, you know, if we're coming off of a period of time, it's been, you know, a couple months of a really low fiber diet. And then all of a sudden we're going back to, you know, 20, 30 grams a day then it's very likely that we're going to experience some gas and bloating. And usually the, the adjustment phase lasts about two to three weeks. Okay. Uh, so, so, you know, it's a period, it's a, it's a pretty solid period of time there. Now there are some forms of fiber or carbohydrate that are highly fermentable. These are the FODMAPs. So if people have heard of like the low FODMAP diet or the low FODMAP intervention, those can be found in, in a wide variety of foods, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, um, legumes, dairy, sugar alcohols. So like protein bars, most protein bars are going to have sugar alcohols in them. Most um, plant-based protein bars and protein powders have inulin or chicory root. And those can both cause a lot of gas and bloating um, because they're highly fermentable. So if you're eating high FODMAP type of foods, it, you may not fully adjust. It may be that you need to kind of either work with someone who can guide you through that low FODMAP process, because it's not intended to be a low, a long-term diet, or to kind of, um, you know, do an N of one, taking out and, and bringing back in uh, one at a time, those kind of more, like the really high FODMAP foods. So like things like garlic and onion, um, avocado, apples, uh, any like fruits with a, with a pit, um, artichokes, those are kind of like the, the really high FODMAP foods that will generally be more associated with causing some gas and bloating. It's not damaging your gut. It's not damaging the gut microbiome. They're actually really happy to have that. It's, it's they're fermenting it. It's just that it's very uncomfortable for us, which is understandable. Um, so we can go about, you know, sort of modifying that, but we want to like throw the baby out with the bathwater and say like, oh, let's just not eat any fiber at all. Yeah, I, I think that that gives some grounds of, of where we should be kind of oscillating between. So we have some recommendations like our RDAs around 20, you know, 25 grams for a female, 38 grams for a, a, a male, maybe 14 grams per thousand calories, um, which you're going to have some movement throughout what phase that you're in. And mm -hmm. then within those within those phases, though, 
that's still kind of an, ar an arbitrary number because it has to be based on how you feel. Some people will have more subjective ratings of GI distress. Some people might have more like visceral hypersensitivity that they really recognize gas formation more so than someone else. That might be more of our like I IBS type in individuals. Mm -hmm. So I think yeah, symptomatically you have to go off that. So what you're comfortable with tolerating, but also mm -hmm. looking at, are you having you know, proper bowel function. And within that, then we can look at those numbers and say, okay, the, around this number, this 25, 38 grams is, is where we should be trying to construct our diet around. So not just focusing on our macro numbers, but maybe we should also be focusing on our fiber numbers, depending on mm -hmm. any phase that we're in. Now looking at these extremes. So you have the the off-season bodybuilder or female bodybuilder that is at this higher end of caloric intake where it's like, gosh, my food volume is so high. I don't, I don't, I have, I have people that come to me that don't eat fruits and vegetables because it's just yeah. like empty space. Right. And they need mm -hmm. like the concentrated um, grains or whatever it may be. Um, how would you handle these type of individuals that say like, Hey, I don't have room for fruits and vegetables. I'm eating all, all white rice because I, I'm trying to keep digestion speed up. What are ways that, that you would go about trying to implement fiber within someone that also needs to have a concentrated volume of food and, and rapid digestion? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, it may be that my coaching approach is unique to sort of the folks that I work with. Uh, because when I think of that question, I think of like, oh, it's, it's sort of asking like, how do I, how do I get someone to, to do something? And that is one thing that I, I kind of, when I'm meant, yeah, when I'm, when I'm mentoring um, coaches, we talk about that as sort of being part of the writing reflex. Unless someone has asked, like, how do I eat more fruits and vegetables? I would probably start by just asking like, how are you feeling? How, you know, or you're, if you're working with me, um, you know, and you want to improve your, your GI function, kind of what's your diet look like right now? Okay, can I give you some information about different fiber types and what they might do for you? And if the person says yes, awesome, I give them that information, explain how soluble fiber can help to um, put water into the stool and help to sort of ease transit and the importance of that for the gut microbiome. And then ask, what would be the reasonable next step for you? What do you think you could include in your diet if you want to start increasing your fruit and veggie intake? And then if they said like, I could probably eat an apple. All right, awesome, let's start with an apple. And then if you feel comfortable with that, see where we can go from there. Um, and generally, you know, providing recommendations about how we might time that fiber intake. So not in our pre-workout meal, you know, we if, like that needs to uh, generally be very low in fiber and fat and, um, and fructose. But can we bias that to sort of later in the day? You know, can we potentially swap out uh, a small serving of the, um, you know, more dense carbohydrate and add in a little bit of fruit or a little bit of vegetables? It doesn't have to be, I think we think, you know, we might think in terms of like, oh, like five servings of fruits and vegetables a day, that sounds like a lot. But depending on the type of produce we're looking at and whether it's cooked or raw, a serving is actually not a huge amount. So even if it's starting with, you know, throwing like a handful of lower FODMAP veggies on the plate to kind of start to acclimate to that, you know, like a few things of like red bell pepper or something and tossing that into a stir fry. So starting with those like small incremental changes. Uh, but if a person is like not wanting to eat any fruits or vegetables at all, well, then that's okay. As long as they're making an informed choice, then it is what it is. Like they're, they're people with autonomy. And I would just say like, all right, well, you know, well, whenever you're ready for that, like, let's have a discussion about it.
Yeah, I guess I, I run into more of like, these are the individuals that the outcome result is on the forefront. So if it's like, hey, eating fruits and vegetables is going to get you to the Olympia, they're like, okay, how do I eat the fruits and vegetables? Right? Yes, yeah, exactly. It's that type of, 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 of individual. So it's coming up with strategies to be able to implement them and have it be doable. That I guess right, that's yeah. more of the issue. Um, mm-hmm. I, I've run in to, like you said, I think going with cooked versus raw is yep. a big one. Like you don't need to eat yeah. a large salad and looking for vegetables that mm-hmm. are more concentrated for that individual and starting small, right? right? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, you don't need to eat a cucumber raw. Right. <laughs> um, like, for, like for me, I'll buy bags of cooked spinach because it's mm-hmm. um, higher in fiber and the food volume is low and it's chopped. Yeah. It's already pretty much chewed up in a way. <laughs> right. Mechanical process is easy and you can just kind of mix it into your food. That makes an easy mm-hmm. way to get some veggies in. Yeah, uh-huh. exactly. Or even using, you know, some veggies that like might not feel like so much empty space, but if you use like a starchy, like a tuber or something, or, you know, a squash that's higher in starch, even something, some of them are fairly dense. Like if you use like um acorn squash, you know, things are a little bit sweeter then you're still contributing to your carbohydrate intake. So it doesn't feel so much like this is just empty space. It's literally just fiber and nothing else. And that way you're kind of still like your, your trajectory is, toward that goal of maintaining high energy intake and, um, and still also providing like additional fiber. Do you, do you think a fiber? well, okay, there's, there's two hours of supplementation. If we, <laughs> if we can't get these like fruits and veggies in, some people are like, oh, John, it's all good. I take a greens powder. I'm like, <laughs> okay, that's not all, I mean, <laughs> fine, but that's not what we're tr- exactly, this is the same crossover here. Um, yeah. There's that aspect, mm-hmm. but then there's also maybe there's a fiber supplement that we could implement, in right. which that gets into what are we maybe looking for a fiber supplement. So mm-hmm. curious, are fruit and veggie powders for these individuals, then also our fiber supplements, which might have crossover, but um, what, how, how would we apply or what's even the takeaway from, from using those? Yeah. Since we don't know which microbes like which type of fiber, the recommendation right now, like from the microbial research community is just probably you need to eat a a diversity of different fiber types because some of them might um, want, you know, when we're looking at FODMAPs, there are different types of FODMAPs. Some are more simple, some are more complex. So, and then we also have the resistant starch, which comes from repeatedly heating and cooling um, like potatoes and rice. So it's something that like manufacturers can add to foods, but they can also be present naturally in like green bananas. So we have all these different fiber types. And when we do, when we take something like just a fiber supplement, we're eating just one type of fiber. And in most cases, fiber supplement, well, I, I shouldn't say that. In some cases, the fiber supplement is not going to be fermentable. So it's not going to be um, a good energy source for those microbes. So it's really not going to support their growth. It's not going to provide them with what they need. In other cases, the fiber supplement may be fermentable and that could be a benefit to those microbes. But again, if we're getting just one type of fiber. So for example, in a uh, you know popular um, fiber snack supplement company, they use inulin or fiber. It is, uh, it is a FODMAP, it's highly fermentable, but it's just one type. And so you're going to feed the microbes that really like that. And then the rest of them are going to be like, ugh, I don't want this. Like, what am I supposed to do? And then they, you know, die within <laughs> a day or two. So um, we, we do want to capitalize on the diversity as much as we possibly can. If we take a look at something like a greens powder, 
that the the problem there and i and i don't mean to like put on my tinfoil hat and say oh the supplement industry is totally unregulated but you know it's generally going to be a proprietary blend and it's going to be a, a blend of sometimes grasses herbs um powdered fruits and vegetables digestive enzymes and probiotics and if you're spending you know i don't know like 30 bucks a month or something on that about half of it is fairly useless <laughs> so things like digestive enzymes uh, even if we get the pharmaceutical grade that have an enteric coating that survive passage through the acidic stomach and into the small intestine, we're looking at really kind of like two, two types that are marginally effective. Now, we can get an over-the-counter digestive enzyme uh, that works. We can use lactase or um, uh, the other one is, is Bino, beta-galactosidase. And those are marginally effective as well. But again, they're going to be either, uh, they're going to be processed in some way that assists passage through the acidic stomach so that the enzyme isn't, you know, sort of unfolded, denatured in the stomach. But outside of that, if we're getting something that's just a powdered digestive enzyme, we don't know whether we're getting the appropriate dose. And uh, by and large, a lot of the enzymes that they're adding, uh, like papain and things like that, really just have not been shown to be effective uh, in, in human studies looking at improvements in digestion. And then if we look at the probiotic blends, well, probiotics are not like a kitchen sink multivitamin. Their effects are strain specific. And again, are we getting the appropriate dose? And do we even need to be taking a probiotic? And then we're looking at sort of like the superfood blends. Most of them are incredibly underdosed. And so now you're paying for, you know, de some dehydrated fruits and vegetables, but is it enough to provide you with the variety and the amount of fiber that you would need in one day? Probably not. So maybe it's a better idea to spend that $30 on some like frozen fruits and vegetables and like, you know, make yourself a smoothie if, it, if that is, you know, within reason for you to be able to ingest easily. So um, the, and, and, you know, looking also at the human studies um, with, with powdered fruits and vegetables specifically, there are some potentially unscrupulous practices with a lot of the RCTs that have gone on or measuring things that really have no physiological relevance. Like, oh, does it matter if we have, you know, like this marker of whatever oxidation, like, is that physiologically relevant? Like, does that actually matter if that changes or not? Yeah. And generally it's no. My org scale is 50,000, like, sweet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. No, I, I think that's interesting because we, I, they're so pertinent now. And that's also as GI health has become more popular, you see mm -hmm. more of the greens and mm -hmm. fruit powders coming out, but a lot of them are devoid of what we're really trying to get out of fruits and veggies is, is actual diversity in fiber sources. Yeah. And we don't know which fibers specifically or the amounts of each. So just eat, eating a variety is really the best thing. It, it's, it sounds so simple. It makes it sound unsexy. <laughs> yes, know? yeah. It, it's, it's a hard exactly. sell. You have a hard sell, Dr. Fundera. <laughs> I know, yeah, yeah. People are always like, want, want, I think they want to hear something like way cooler uh, than that. And I'm like, regular physical activity and fruits and vegetables. And they're like, well, that's easy. Yeah. You know, I've been, do, I've been doing that, but like clearly something must still be oh, wrong. Oh, oh but you don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, even with, uh, you know, with the enzyme, uh, they, mm -hmm. they pretty much would have to be enterocoded because they, they are constructed of proteins. So stomach acid would degrade the functionality. And then you have to say, well, are, do you lack enzymes? And some people do, and those would be the specific enzymes that could help. But for mm -hmm. someone gener generally needs more protease or amylase enzymes, 
we're probably having sufficient pancreatic function to where even these individuals with very high food intake, six, 7,000 calories, are mm -hmm. able to produce plenty of, of uh, digestive enzymes on their own mm -hmm. um, without the need of that supplementation. Um, you, you, uh, you brought up something that just came to mind because I've had these questions and it's kind of nuanced, but come up with some people that um, blend their foods and, and mm -hmm. treat them um, mm -hmm. as a way for ease of, of digestion and speed. Mm -hmm. but, yeah. but then also a component of that, we talked about, you brought up resistant starches, um, mm -hmm. reheating, cooling foods, rices, potatoes, and it changes the digestibility of these. And a lot of times in bodybuilding, you're carrying your, your bag around, you got like six meals with you and you're just like, oh shit, no microwave, I just need to eat this meal. And yeah. um, for, for an individual that's on a high food intake, eating your food cold, potentially, like you're, like you're saying, might have more resistant starch and slow the digestive process down. It, um, if, if this is a thing, um, you, know, you know, stretching to ask that, uh, whether you're eating your oats cold or your potatoes or rice cold, um, mm -hmm. does this have any variance uh, of that something to be a concern? Well, I probably not in the case of like, you know, you cook it once and you put it in the fridge and then you eat it cold, or maybe you like cook once, put it in the fridge and then heat it up. Um, that probably wouldn't produce a great deal of resistant starch in the few studies that have looked at that. I think one was like, might've looked at between like 10 cycles of, of reheating and cooling. I, I think at that point, the food might not be even like, it would be hardly edible. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I know. Like not, not really. I'm thinking Someone's about very like, unorganized. Like I can't, I get, I'm busy now. I got to go eat my food. Oh, wait, no, I'm busy again. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so it'll probably be more effort than it's worth to like go through the process of, of like reheating and, and cooling. Um, so that probably wouldn't play a significant role, but potentially in sort of starting the mechanical digestion process, that could certainly influence satiety levels. Uh, so if it, if you have more rapid, um, gastric emptying, so if you have like a, a fluid meal and, um, you know, you have rapid gastric emptying, then potentially you'd be able to eat again soon after that. In looking at highly processed diets versus minimally, minimally processed diets. There is a slight difference in the thermic effect of the meal and also in, uh, you know, the, the accessibility of the dietary fibers and things like that. Like, uh, you know, the, uh, the, I should say like the speed with which they enter the large intestine, there could potentially be a, an effect on sort of like the digestibility but again, it would be so minor that it's probably more just a functional thing of like, oh, I can eat soon, you know, more quickly after this. If we're comparing processing in terms of like white bread versus whole grain bread, then the big difference there is the fiber content. And again, you know, that is definitely going to have an influence on, on the microbiome. But if you took your like, you know, vegetable, brown rice, chicken meal and blended it versus eating it whole, <laughs> wouldn't be too, too much of a difference. Yeah, I mean, the only thing that else would come to mind would be maybe maybe the actual um, environmental lifestyle factors that go into someone that would need to eat like that. If they're oh, very yeah. like sympathetically driven and they're racing around, you never have that time to sit down and relax and actually 
be able to have the actual food eating process and mastication mm -hmm. and everything that goes on in the brain yeah. around digestion okay. that yep. maybe you could have digestive issues surrounding mm -hmm. just trying to chug your food all day. Um, not, not the actual food that is blended is the issue, more mm -hmm. so that you're not getting into a state where you can have optimal di digestion with parasympathetic activity. Yeah, yeah, that certainly could be the case because now if we're sort of, um, you know, we haven't gone through, and this is like throwback to, you know, anatomy and physiology when I was, when I was taking it, um, you know, but when we were talking about like the different phases of digestion, like having sort of like the, the cephalic phase and whatnot, and then the gastric phase. Um, so like anticipating food, sensing the food, chewing the food, you know, sort of priming the digestive tract to begin producing all of the digestive enzymes and buffers and whatnot, then yeah, potentially you could experience a little bit more GI distress because you're ingesting your food really quickly, maybe even like swallowing more air. So sometimes when people have significant bloating, I'm asking how fast are you eating? Are you speaking while you're eating? And because, you know, if we're swallowing a lot of air, really not in the, in the um, intestine, but you can still have a lot of bloating sensations and just kind of like a lot of belching and whatnot. So even the way in which we're eating can, can play a role. Yeah, that, I think that covers our high energy intake individuals, which is not going to be everybody. I feel like everyone's going to be more so on the area of like, hey, I'm always starving and I'm hungry. And because I'm on this mm -hmm. low calorie diet, which is, is me yeah. <laughs> and uh, increasing fiber, but it can be to a level that you take away actual fuel availability, right? Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. and uh, I don't know if you work with many contest prep athletes or issues that you run into with these individuals, if, mm -hmm. um, where we're looking at macronutrient compositions and, uh, as we get into the last phase of dieting, if we should be driving, you know, fats and go lower carbs or if mm -hmm. just dropping fats completely out to where you can maintain your carbohydrate intake and fiber intake, mm -hmm. um, and, and what these compositions might look like, what, do you issues do you commonly see in the dieting physique athlete um, that mm. need to be addressed? Mm -hmm. I would say the majority of my clientele are either um, people trying to sort of move away from chronic dieting or folks who have competed in the past and then um, may or may not have GI distress currently, but it does. Uh, but it, it is a common occurrence in folks who are in the late stages of dieting or folks who have sort of a chronic low energy intake. Uh, and, and this is not a group that's really been studied often, but there are, uh, there's limited data looking at populations who have chronic low energy intake um, in the form of anorexia nervosa and individuals with eating disorders. And GI distress is really common with those folks. And could, in fact, in, in some folks who maybe have subclinical eating pathology, um, chronic GI distress, especially things like constipation, could mm. potentially be a red flag for the presence of that eating pathology. Uh, and it could be, in part, that GI transit slows, so people are more likely to experience um, constipation, so like they're having a reduced frequency of bowel movements, they're feeling a sense of fullness or bloating, or they, they may perceive that even if it's sort of a normal amount, um, but just their sort of subjective perspectives may, might um, be more sensitive to it. Um, and there are not consistent changes to 
the microbiome. In some cases, they've seen an increase in diversity and in other cases, a reduction in diversity. So again, it's sort of the idea of just like, there's an adaptation to low energy intake and probably we're seeing some, some um, changes in terms of like some microbes can handle lower energy intake. They can handle a longer period of time um, without nutrient availability. So that's what I've seen more commonly in, in folks who have low energy intake is just that they're slower transit, they're experiencing constipation. They might then be experiencing bloating, you know, yeah, if they're having a really high um, volume of, of veggie intake. So when it comes down to getting ready to get on stage, you know, there's a difference between, uh, sometimes there's a difference between eating for performance and eating for health. And that I think is really a prime example because on stage, we are not at peak performance or at peak health. <laughs> We're really, you know, we look super shredded, um, but we are uh, weak and dehydrated and have horrible head fog and we're in a bad mood and we're tired and we just want to eat because we've pushed our bodies to the extreme. And in that case, um, you know, it's, it's probably going to come down to the macronutrient ratio that is most optimal for that person in least optimal conditions. So keeping in mind, you know, the um, influence of, of, you know, fat intake on, and energy intake on things like sex hormone production, that it, you know, that is going to cause some, some level of risk if we take a person's fat intake really, really low for more than just a couple of weeks. We may not see the same risk associated with really low carbohydrate intake, but I do recall seeing an article on physique, female physique athletes that um, reintroducing carbohydrate intake seemed to uh, better improve reestablishment of normal menses. But, you know, across the board, I would say like when we're looking at, at folks who have that really low energy intake long term, that there could certainly be an influence on, on the microbiome and gut health, but we're probably looking at more like a systemic issue of just like how low energy intake influences all systems and how the body's trying to adapt to that. And slower GI transit is one of those adaptations. Yeah, I think we start getting into area of, of uh, re relative energy deficiency yep. in sports reds, which mm -hmm. is a, a more systemic issue that we have high energy expenditure, uh, low body fat stores, and low energy intake. And there is a systemic adaptations to systems across the board, whether that's, you know, drop in, in all hormone levels, drop in thyroid function, that could influence mm -hmm. GI transit time. Yep. You know, just GI transits decreased, uh, rectal contractilities decreased, but then mm -hmm. that's along with actual what your intake is. Food volume's increasing, they're less to move through the digestive tract. And, mm -hmm. and so there's, there's, there's a, lot, a lot going on there to pinpoint it to like, oh yeah, you just need to eat a higher carbohydrate diet. It, it might not even matter at that point because of the low body fat, the low food intake, and the high energy output, you could have maybe high fat, low, low carb, low, high carb, low fat, um, and, and you might still just run into these issues. And at that point, it's like just accepting the fact that you know we're in these last weeks and we're are, we're getting more shift to goal focused versus and with the realization that there's going to be some health risk detriments during this short term. But I think where the real issue lies and where the client base that you work with a lot is the chronic the dieting that can occur for people that stay in this state for so long. Yeah. And then that results in actual chronic pathological conditions potentially, mm -hmm. um, which we see. And, and that's maybe that's where you run into this 
greater stress-induced uh, GI issues where you mm -hmm. have it affecting other systems or the systems are affecting the GI. We don't really know which way it goes, right? But if there's associations yeah. between the two. Um, within these individuals that you work with, where they've seen these chronic dieting, um, what, what, are, what are your main tools that you use to help kind of reverse? Obviously, it's like getting out of chronic diet state, but it's <laughs> individuals that are in uh, like high stress exposure for long periods of time, um, mm -hmm. uh, altered hormone levels. Uh, you know, what, what are your, your, your kind of main big go-tos that you're using for these individuals that are coming out of these contests that have been dieting forever? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I, um, I'm fortunate in with, with respect to the fact that when folks are coming to me, it's because they feel very ready to make the change. Although I have worked with some folks who are still really understandably fearful about, you know, moving away from macro tracking and moving away from, from sort of chronically uh, pursuing a smaller body size. And um, over the past couple of years, I've worked with my good friend and colleague, Shannon, uh, Shannon Beer, and we've developed a uh, sort of an operationalized framework to help increase individuals' psychological flexibility and and their sort of their capacity to make changes, and 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 aim for an outcome of we of flourishing health. So flourishing health is not just focused on physical well-being, but it's well-being uh, that is specific to that individual across all domains of life. So quite often when people are really focused on physique changes, their um, mental and emotional health can suffer, their social connections can suffer. And so the framework that we put together synthesizes an approach uh, called motivational interviewing, mm -hmm. which is a way of uh, engaging with a client to create a non-judgmental space to talk about the potential of making change without trying to actually get them to make a change. And we also add in practices from cognitive behavioral coaching. So that uh, encourages people to identify and challenge unhelpful thought and behavioral patterns. And we also integrate uh, practices from acceptance and commitment therapy, which is a way to help individuals defuse from their thoughts and identify that those are not universal truths and then have a greater capacity to sort of challenge those thoughts uh, create space between their, their actions and those thoughts and to identify their values, how they really want to live their lives and align their actions in that direction. So when I start working with a client, the first things that we do, uh, obviously, you know, we're establishing rapport, we're getting to know each other because we might be talking about some things that are really difficult to, to talk about. You know, we're discussing body image, we're discussing um, beliefs and values. And we start with a couple foundational activities uh, in terms of identifying and prioritizing values uh, and then um, identifying what I, it's an activity I call the intentional action grid. So helping people identify what's really important to them. And then the things that they might do that um, are sort of avoidance things. So like avoid difficult thoughts and emotions. And then the things that they do that help them feel very aligned with their values. And from there we come up with, sometimes we come up with uh, concrete goals that are aligned with values, but sometimes we come up with some maybe more subjective goals, things that are more focused on, you know, like I want to journal this week, or I want to go out with friends and I want to eat a meal with my friends. I want to, um, you know, not track. So after we've gone through these exercises, 
we start to come up with a change plan. We start to talk about, you know, what, you know, based on, uh, you know, let's talk about your ideal day. No one that I've ever worked with has ever said, I wake up and I weigh myself and I weigh this exact amount and I look in the mirror and I've got a six pack. When people talk about their ideal day, they're talking about the hobbies and the people that are important to them and how they want to engage with those people. And sure, a lot of them also really like training, you know, so yeah, they want to go to the gym but they wanna be able to eat and live their lives in a way that feels more liberated and autonomous. Mm -hmm. And so the next step is what's the next step for you that feels comfortable? What would you, what would you feel comfortable doing? You know, if it sounds like you wanna live a life like this, what's something you could do tomorrow that would take you one step closer? And maybe they say, I don't track my breakfast. Awesome, let's start there. And we take a stepwise approach. And over time, people really start to establish more trust in themselves and establish greater capacity to challenge those limiting thoughts and beliefs. And it's a really organic process moving toward uh, increased food, freedom, liberation. And that translates to increased energy intake. And it translates to less stress. And it translates to more internal motivations to engage in all sorts of physical activity and they don't like train less, you know, and they um, sometimes their eating patterns do change in the short term, but over time people generally feel really comfortable when yeah, they're eating fruits and vegetables and a variety of different foods and um, engaging in enjoyable physical activity. And of course the practical side of that is that we are, you know, I'm, I'm saying, have you visited your, your general practitioner? You know, we want to make sure that, um, we're referring out to the professionals who have, who, who cover that side of things. So if a person comes to me with GI distress, my first step is, do you have a gastroenterologist? Have you visited them? What were your results? Do you need a second opinion? Or have you visited your GP or your gynecologist? So I'm ensuring that the people are, you know, advocating for themselves and seeing other practitioners. And I'm helping with, with the lifestyle side of things and the interventions that can help to you know, bring all of those other aspects back to normalcy. But if there's something going on with their hormone levels or there's something going on with their lipid levels, you know, they're also working with that practitioner. If they have to go out on a statin or something or you know, they, uh, anything else, like I, I am very much um, pro uh, integrating all of those you know, practitioners and those recommendations together um, and helping that person make the changes that might've been recommended by a practitioner which I think that whole thought process for those that are still like plugged into the competing realm is very important to understand, right? We can still approach a goal with autonomy built in within that goal. And, and, John, I, and John and I have discussed this before, like building that autonomy within a plan to allow them to have that, that sense of self-worth and they're choosing like the direct yeah. the direction in which that decision is being made, right? Oh um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's yeah. something that's a, a lot of times missed by coaches is that, you know, obviously contest prep has to be very detail oriented and, mm -hmm. and very informed, right? But there are phases of the process where more autonomy can be built in. And mm -hmm. in my opinion, that's where like the more successful athletes are is when, when that autonomy is, is built into the plan. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it also supports their longevity in the sport, yep. you know, like when we're keeping health in mind. Yeah. It's, you know, cause I, I listen to you speak on these individuals that are coming to you that have such a a mental struggle and change in behavior that's been previously established through these very strict practices that, especially within the competitive realm that just caters to eating disorders and harmful thought processes. 
And so, you know, as a coach, I never want to lead someone into that. And it's a, it is a struggle because you do have certain strict practices that you do have to, to integrate. Um, it, are there any, like some main points that you would give to people that are, are coaching competitors that you see like, hey, these are some things that we should not be doing that just like really lights you on fire <laughs> that um, we should really move away from and maybe some things that we should also be really integrating that for the competitors that we do work with to prevent them leaving the competitive realm early or, mm-hmm. or eventually coming back to, you know, try to live real life and have these yeah. struggles. Oh, yeah. You know, I'm always like, my, I'm thinking long-term and I'm wondering like, are you going to be counting macros when you're 80? Like, right. you know, what's your, <laughs> you know, what's your yes. long, <laughs> right? Yeah, I know. Right. Like, yeah, well, <laughs> like the, the food will just come with the macros on it. And, you know, at that point, like technology will have advanced that far. Um, so yeah, I, I think that uh, my first recommendation would be direct people if they haven't read it already. Um, but the, um, Helms at all paper toward a sustainable nutrition paradigm in physique sport. Okay. Pretty sure that's the title of that one. Um, I, I so Eric Helms is, I think, uh, just a, a beacon in, in the industry. You know, he's a physique athlete and a sports scientist an all around awesome person. And he really, does um, a great service to the sport in acknowledging the risk of eating pathology and, you know, and body image disturbances. And sort of jokingly talks about like, you know, giving like when we're a physique athlete and I've done only one physique show, but, you know, we kind of like give ourselves an eating disorder for six months. And then we spend, you know, the next year recovering from the eating disorder. But I mean, that really is, you know, where we are really towing the line on eating pathology because we are purposely putting ourselves in a state of starvation. And we know what that does to a person's psychology. Um, So that paper talks about how we can move along the spectrum of uh, a more sort of like macros focused and and I'll also add um, that Shannon and I have developed the sort of intentional, uh, uh, excuse me, the spectrum of intentional eating. And there's four quadrants and we move from externally to more internally regulated ways of eating. So externally regulated would be be macros. So you eat the number of macros and the, the meal is done when your plate is clean because you eat your macros. To more internally regulated forms of eating, something like Um, focusing on either hunger training or mindful eating or intuitive eating, um, which is a response to hunger and satiety signals. So when I'm hungry, I eat, eat slowly, I pay attention. When I'm I'm not hungry anymore, I stop eating. So the the, the plate might not be clean at that point. And then we can talk about more functional approaches to eating versus more maybe like rehabilitative approaches to eating. So something like intuitive eating would be something that's more rehabilitative. Something that's macros tracking would be very functional and efficient. There, there can also be uh, more structured but rehabilitative forms of eating. So in individuals with anorexia nervosa, they have to regain weight for medical purposes. Uh, so it's not to demonize or, or moralize any of these approaches. They all have unique applications. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Helms uh, and, and, the, and his co-authors came up with this idea of sort of moving along that spectrum of in the off season, using more internal, internally regulated forms of eating. So responding to hunger and fullness cues, maybe using the hunger scale to say, okay, I'm at a two or a three right now. I want to eat until I'm at a four or so. Uh, and I believe actually Alberto Nunez has talked about this, that he's 
use this internal regulation to even get on stage. He just kind of was like, all right, I need to be hungry all the time. <laughs> like I should never be satisfied after a meal kind of thing. Uh, and then when we're in season, when we're in prep, then we might go to uh, something that's more macros. We don't have to count all of the macros right away, but we might start counting with like, start counting fat or something. And then the, with, with closer proximity to stage, that's when we go to more of like a macros oriented approach. But I think at all phases that needs to be done, um, you know, as you mentioned, Luke, like we're still respecting the person's autonomy that we say, okay, here are your options. And this is what I do with my clients too. I'm like, okay, well, if you're not comfortable not counting macros, I'm not going to tell you like you have to stop counting macros. You know, that's your goal at the end of this, but we're going to start with whatever you're comfortable with. But we also have something like plate planning, you know, like half mm -hmm. your plates, vegetables, and then we do some starch and, and some protein. Um, but, uh, you know, respecting autonomy would, would have to be one of the, the top um, aspects and practicing empathy. And this is one that I think, especially in sort of like the bodybuilding and physique world that people scoff at a little bit because they're like, well, I'm not going to go easy on my clients. You know, I'm not going to go easy on myself. We're never going to be motivated to do anything. And by and large, there's a great deal of empirical evidence to illustrate that actually empathy is super, super important for any sort of coaching or therapeutic alliance. And empathy is just that you have an understanding of that person's experience and you express it to them. You're like, wow that must have been really frustrating. Oh, wow. I feel so excited about that. Oh, I can totally understand why you'd feel angry in that moment. So just expressing that that person feels understood. And um, along with that, the expression of compassion. So trying to like alleviate a person's suffering or not cause suffering and provide them with hope. So even if they get discouraged about something, that was really challenging. I know you must be really frustrated. Let's talk about how we can help you. Like what, what if this happens again? How might we help you that time? that compassion and self-compassion are also actually associated with overall better well-being, mentally, physically, emotionally, in relationships, and with achievement. So you don't lose motivation when you're kind to yourself or when you're kind to your client and you're understanding and compassionate to them and you collaborate with them. When we're talking about risks of eating pathology and body disturbance, we can but it's important to realize that it's not necessarily the thing that we're doing that's risky. So if we're counting macros, if we're tracking body weight, that's not necessarily what's going to potentiate the eating pathology. It's the cognition behind that. So why is that person tracking their body weight? Why is that person counting macros? And what do they think about the numbers that they're seeing? So if we can encourage an analysis perspective, oh, my body weight went up this, this time, that's not expected. Well, let's think about what happened this past week. Oh, it was maybe because of this and that, rather than just adherence. Did you stick to the plan? Oh, you didn't? That's a fail. So if we can analyze, that really can increase the person's uh, ability to make change and also their likelihood of being honest with themselves and with us. So they're less likely to like maybe not track something or not tell us something. Uh, and then in addition to that, when we're talking about body image disturbance, of course, physique sports, we are literally focused on how we look and we're putting ourselves on stage to be judged by that. But if we can, as much as possible, still encourage a focus on body functionality, that we recognize that when we're on stage, our body is not super functional. And yes, we've sculpted it to look this way. It's a form of body modification. Like if we get a tattoo or we get our hair cut, weight modification is body modification. It's a way that we can express ourselves. It's not necessarily, it's not inherently harmful. But if we assign our value as a person or our worth as a person to how we look, that can potentially be risky. 
if we stay focused on like my body is functional and it does all these things for me and like it digests my food and it lets me engage with my friends and go to the gym and that feels really great and we can support that the whole way through and also more of that psychological flexibility about how, how our body will look so right now my body looks this way and when I'm off stage it's going to look this way and the off season is going to look this way and that we have those expectations set up I think those can be very protective factors and the groundwork, sort of the underpinning for all of this that I think is really important is that people are making an informed choice. So they're providing informed consent that all sorts of sports come with risk, right? Like football is a contact sport. You have a risk of concussion. MMA, you have a risk of all sorts of stuff. Physique sports, you have a risk of body dysmorphia and eating pathology. And, you know, having that conversation so that a person knows what they're getting into when they say they want to step on stage, that it's not just like, oh, this is your way to diet to your best body ever. And it's going to stay looking like that forever. And you're going to really like yourself at the end of this, that like, we're really transparent. And that's not necessarily the case. Then yeah, we're respecting people's autonomy as adults to make these decisions and do things that are potentially risky, but we're also being aware of those risks and we're mitigating harm as much as possible. Yeah, I think within the competitive realm, like a, a harm reduction approach, if you can implement it, which we, we should, this should be in the forefront of our minds with what we're doing. You're taking a, a very uh, huge responsibility in coaching individual, and nowadays everyone coaches. And, yeah. and, and there's no necessary qualifications that you need to do so. And a lot of people just think of it, oh yeah, I can make a nutrition plan and give it out. But you mm -hmm. haven't taken the thought of, you know, setting expectations for these individuals, what this process should look like, what it involves, not physically, but also mentally, psychologically, and what comes after competing. And there's, there's a, a lot to really consider here. And within that, like you mentioned, trying to uh, mit mitigate any issues that could be driving from these types of practices of just getting on stage with mm -hmm. building in autonomy and letting these people have some type of control and, and also building knowledge so that they're able to take these tools that you're giving them and take them long-term, but also move away from tools that might not be the best in certain phases and move mm -hmm. into more just a, a, um, an enjoyable lifestyle approach to eating that can still move themselves towards their goals and not being able, not just tying body image to success and failure, but uh, mm -hmm. trying to, you know, see, uh, how, you, how you can actually enjoy this this process and self-develop into something and make, let that be your takeaway versus up the scales up or down and I'm a fail. Um, right. But uh, I, I, you know, I know we're getting low on time, but we really covered uh, a vast spectrum I didn't think we would get yeah. into today <laughs> from like, what is gut health into body image and psychology and, you know, eating disorders. But it just shows you like how all encompassing this can really be and how it can affect so much. Um, yeah. I think uh, this, this is a, a great conversation. I just really appreciate you coming on, Dr. Fendero, and, and speaking on these topics. And um, I, I think each one could, each different area we dove into is a deep dive you yeah. know, in itself. Um, for people to learn more about just GI function uh, or even about, you know, behavior, cognitive change, uh, where can they find you or get more information? I, I believe you are in the process of writing a book for Renaissance Periodization, right, mm -hmm. on yep. GI health and sport. And yeah. that might be available soon <laughs> yes yeah it's actually in the we're in the process of getting the illustrations done oh, so it's cool. gone through editing yeah so um i'm super excited for that it will be 
Um, it's sort of a gut health science primer. So it gives people a working knowledge of sort of the, the realities and the myths um, and the limitations of, of the research uh, as it stands, you know, as of 2021. Um, and so, yeah, we expect that out at some point this year, sometime, some point, um, uh, you know, before the year is over, that'll be out. Um, but if people want to, to learn more about, you know, sort of gut health and coaching things, um, my Instagram is vitaminphd, and my email or my, my website, easy enough to remember, vitaminphdnutrition.com. And I also run btgcomprehensivecoaching.com. So that's the one that's focused more on the um, aspects of the comprehensive coaching framework and all of the um, kind of sociocultural uh, influences historically up to the present um, on things like counting calories and, and dieting and, you know, whether diet culture is actually a thing. So I cover um, kind of both but like both areas um, on, on those two websites. And I try to produce a lot of free content too on my Instagram. So you can usually see a, about a two to one ratio of gut health posts to coaching and behavior change psychology posts there. We all appreciate the free content, but we look forward to the paid content too. Because uh, yes. that, that book sounds uh, like it's going to be awesome for what we need within the yeah. industry to to dispel myths and what we should really be focusing on and taking away. But. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I guess I should, I should also plug, I'm, I always forget this stuff, but um, I'm doing a, I'm starting a monthly series on gut health webinars. Oh, cool. So it's going to start out with, with just me, but over time I'll be collecting um, guest speakers and whatnot, other people who have uh, research experience in the gut. And so it's going to be uh, kind of just chill little talks about various topics that people bring up quite often and long Q and A's. So keep your eyes peeled for those things. It'll also be a little bit more paid content. Yeah, no, awesome. Luke and I would love to jump on those, <laughs> learn more about the GI. So we'll stay plugged into your IG. I'm sure you'll be announcing those on there. I'll put all in the show notes, all the links to your websites and information. And also I'll put up the link to that Helms paper so people can take a look at the sustainability and, and physique sport. That'd be a good read for anyone that wants to learn more. But uh, thanks again for coming on. And this is J3U podcast, and we will talk to you next time.